25, John 15, verse 18 through 25. Our sermon title will be in verse 22. John 15, beginning at verse 18, reads, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Obviously, the Lord used the word sin numerous times in that passage. And the Bible is a book that talks extensively about sin. It is rather ironic that as time goes on, that less and less seems to be said in our generation about sin when the Bible has so much to say about sin. I think we would say to some degree that in modern circles of Christianity today, sin is a very unpopular subject in many and most churches. And many times we remind you of this by saying we live in a day and age in which it's a sin to call sin a sin. That's putting it bluntly, but that's about as brief as we can do it to be truthful. And it is not popular to label things as sin. But it has become more and more popular and more and more compromising to rather ignore sin as if it will go away or in some sense a minimization of sin. But sin is the subject of the Bible, and therefore redemption is necessary, and Christ is necessary. So you cannot minimize sin and maximize Christ. I mean, we would use the illustration of what Jesus said about the woman in Simon the Pharisee's house that came and, you know, anointed him and washed his feet with her tears and dried his feet with the hairs of her head and never uttered a word. And Jesus said she loved much because her sins were many, but they were forgiven. So again, great sin requires a great Savior. If we minimize sin, we don't need much of a Jesus. And sadly, that seems to be what's going on today is the uncompromising things about sin. God has not changed. Sin is still just as great as it ever was. It stands out an offense to God. Sin is an abomination unto God. And therefore, God will one day judge all sin. Think about it with me for a moment in this introduction that the Bible begins with the subject of sin, doesn't it? 
You only get three chapters in, and we are introduced to sin. And the Bible speaks about sin. The Word is in the Bible hundreds of times. From then all the way to the book of Revelation. And you might might challenge you here a little bit, a little trivia, and say, are you aware that even Revelation ends talking about sin? Usually we don't think of that because it doesn't stand out in the 21st and 22nd chapters as much as the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and all things that are going to happen and be therein. But let me point that out to you. The Bible closes in the last two chapters still talking about sin. Chapter 21, the last verse of that chapter, verse 27 says, speaking of the light of the new Jerusalem previously, there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And of course, that's sin. The word sin is not there, but all of that is in reference to sin. And then in the final chapter, chapter 22, the 15th verse, and remember the Bible ends with verse 21. It's only six verses before the Bible ends. It speaks about in verse 14 how blessed it is for those who will enter into the gates of the city of the New Jerusalem. In verse 15 it says, for without, and this is not just outside of the New Jerusalem, but outside of heaven itself, without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. Outside of the new heaven and new earth, punished forever in eternity in hell. So, much compromise today about sin, about sin's dire effects, the consequences of sin, and warnings about the judgment of sin. Let us never be silent about sin. I'll say it again. To minimize sin is to minimize the Savior. I think we would all be in awe if we could grasp how big and how offensive sin is to our righteous and holy and sovereign God. We have all, as we've grown in grace as Christians, learned more and more the greatness of sin. It's not something we understand totally or completely when we're saved. It's not something we'll ever be to fully grasp. But we grow in our stand understanding of the greatness of sin and what an offense it is unto our God. Sin is the great issue. It always has been. You know, as generations come and go, there are always crises. There are always great moments, great things, great happenings, great whatever. But sin has been the great crisis throughout human history and always will be. There will never be a crisis greater than the human crisis of sin upon mankind. And to deny that or to move away from that is to compromise. Sin is the issue. Sin is what must be addressed. It must be identified. 
and something must be done about it or else. I, re- I frequently reference this scripture and without apology, Isaiah chapter 59 sets it so clearly before us, this issue of sin and what it does and what the need is. Chapter 59, 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But here it is. Here's the whole issue, the whole problem. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. And it goes on to talk in detail about those very sins. And of course, this is nothing but a summary of what we see in Genesis chapter 3 when our first parents did sin, how the relationship with God was broken, never to be reestablished except through the reconciliation that is in Christ through the remission of sins of his blood. So sin is the great issue. It is sin that causes all the problems we know of. It is sin that brings about all the suffering in the world, all the misery in the world. Every problem can be related to sin. And Christ is the only remedy for sin. We make no apology for that. These are two great points that stand or fall together. Jesus himself said three times, I believe, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that he came to call sinners to repentance. He did not come to call the righteous. He identified himself as the great physician and said that they that be whole have no need of me, I paraphrase. But they that be sick, we are under the terminal effects of sin. And without Christ, we would face the second death. Now, to compromise about sin is to give sinners a cloak for their sin. And that is our subject from verse 22 where Jesus said about those whom he were addressing, namely Pharisees and Sadducees of his day, that they have now no cloak for their sin. To not call sin sin is to again give those who commit sin a cloak for their sin. And I'll discuss that. Jesus Christ did not do that. He exposed sin. He called sin, sin. He warned about sin. So did the apostles, the prophets, and the writers of the Bible. And God help us always here at this church to do the same thing. Not to man- We can't maximize sin. We can't do that. It's greater than we know. But we can minimize it. God help us not to do so in that respect. Again, our title, A Cloak for Sin, taken there from verse 22. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. And before I define and elaborate on what is meant by that and what a cloak means in that respect within the context, I want you to get this in case uh, I get tuned out later on or you don't hear it. But every sinner has a cloak, singular or plural, for their sin. There has never been a human being since Adam and Eve fell 
who has not had or does not have a cloak for their sin. And I'll seek to prove that to you in this message today. And it matters not anything about the person. It does not matter in what generation they lived in. It does not matter what sex they are, male or female. It does not matter if they are educated or illiterate, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, religious, irreligious, pagan or Christian within the realms of Christianity. All sinners have some kind of cloak or cloaks, plural, for their sin. And if you know much about what I'm talking about, you can start thinking about your own right now before you were saved. We all had them. We all had them. You may not identify it as I'm about to, but you had it. And every sinner who is lost today has a cloak for their sin. Well, there's a couple of definitions if you get a dictionary and look up cloak. And one is simply a garment or a clothing. It can be a piece of clothing. It's usually not the underwear type clothing, whether in ancient days or in modern days. But it would be a secondary piece of clothing. And in fact, could even be a third or fourth layer of clothing. Uh, Paul used the word to Timothy about the cloak that I left at, I believe he said Troas, somewhere in his journeys. Bring it to me, if you will. And this would have been an outer garment, much like we would call an overcoat or a raincoat or some garment like that to repel wind, weather, storm, or whatever. Paul desired to have that. So we understand that, a cloak. And many times, uh, you know, we see in centuries uh, past, it was very popular for to wear a cloak of some sort, like a cape that would be tied around the neck that would protect one many times uh, riding horseback or what have you through a storm. In fact, I think there's pictures of that of John Bunyan and stuff and, you know, in his era, you know, and well, those were cloaks. So it is not, in the context of our verse, a garment in that sense. However, the definition of our word cloak here in the context does function like a garment does. Give you a little hint on that. When you put on a cloak, a garment of some sort, what are you doing? You're covering up. You're covering up. And whatever is underneath that cloak, unless it's transparent in its quality, is hidden, is it not? You can't see through it to see what's underneath, just like the clothes we're wearing today. Our bodies are hidden by clothing. So it would be with a cloak. Well, the word is used seven times in the New Testament. This word, not the word cloak that literally means a garment. That's a totally different word. But seven times the word here is used and it's translated in different ways. It's only translated cloak twice. Once here, and once in 1 Thessalonians 2 and 5, where Paul says, we didn't come to you with flattering words or a cloak of covetousness. Okay? So he's using that sort of metaphorically there, speaking of that we were hiding with a covetous spirit. We didn't come to you that way. Three times it is used and translated pretense. 
pretense. In Matthew 23, 14, Mark 12, 40, which are the same verses in two of the Gospels, and then in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 18, all three times there the word is translated pretense. In Acts 27 and 30, the word is translated under color. Under color, a little bit different, but we're going to go read that once I give you the last one. And you'll see very clearly in that one and the last one, which is show in Luke 20, 47, here we find the real definition played out. So let's look at those very quickly. In Acts chapter 27 and verse 30, and as we turn there, you might remember the latter chapters of Acts is Paul's journey to Rome. This is the next to the last chapter. It was a very dangerous journey. Uh, they made shipwreck and so forth. And chapter 27 deals with the shipwreck. And notice verse 30. It says, And as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, when they had let down the boat into the sea, under color as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship. Now, that is saying there, under color has nothing to do with a flag flying on the ship. Okay, so it doesn't have nothing to do with that. But it's translated, you might wonder here, okay, why is it under color when it's pretense somewhere else, a cloak somewhere else, yet under color here? Well, these guys were wanting to get out of the ship because it was sinking. But they'd already been told they shouldn't. So they're letting down what we would call the lifeboat, and they are under pretense of, well, we got to let this boat down and get in it and take these anchors out to the front of the ship and drop them, you know, to secure the ship. When all in all, that was just a cover for them. Once they got out of that ship and into that boat, they were leaving. They were out of there. And everybody else could sink ground or whatever. That's why it says under color, so to speak. Well, let's just think about that for a moment. Think about a coloring book. You know, I mean, we all played with coloring books and children, I assume, still do today. And there's a picture of something. And then what do you do with your Crayolas? You put color on it, don't you? And once you have, you covered up whatever was underneath. Same way with painting a wall. I mean, when it's under color, you don't know what there, right? We, we use the expression a lot of times in carpentry, saying nothing that a good coat of paint won't cover. You know, I mean, it covers it up. So they were covering up their real motives and real intentions here uh, about we're going to do a good deed and take these anchors out and save the ship. All they were looking to do was save themselves. That's a pretense. That's what a cloak is. They were hiding behind, disguising just like a piece of clothing disguises what is underneath. Now let's look at Luke chapter 20 quickly, and I'm taking the time to read it because these, these two scriptures really, without reading all seven of them, really enhance and make clear the definition, and I thought it necessary. Luke 20 and verse, let's begin reading in uh, verse 45. Here's the actual application of what Jesus is talking about in our text of the scribes and Pharisees, of what it meant that they have, the Pharisees, a cloak for their sin. Here it is, literally. Then in the audience of all the people, he said unto his disciples, verse 45, Beware of the scribes, and notice this, which desire to walk in long robes 
and loved greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at feast, which devour widows' houses and for a show make long prayers, the same shall receive a greater damnation. Now, the things there mentioned, long robes, greetings in the market, highest seat in the synagogues, chief rooms in the feast, and the long prayers are all to cover up or a pretense of goodness and righteousness for devouring or criminally taking widows' houses, taking advantage of. The bad deed there, the evil, is hidden, covered, and disguised by the other things that are mentioned. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says, If I had not come and spoke unto them and did the works that I did in front of them, they would have had a cloak for their sin, but now they don't have a cloak for their sin. They cannot hide it, in other words. They cannot disguise it. So literally in our text, the literal definition we might say would be to disguise, hide, or cover sin. And this is what sinners are all good at. You and I and every sinner excels in this. It comes very naturally, and it is very easy. Let me give you a little bit more on that definition, if I may. If you take a Webster's Dictionary and look up pretense for what we said is the definition here, the word you will see, several words in fact, that precede pretense in your dictionary will be pretend and forms of the word pretend. And they are directly associated. A pretense is to pretend. And the pretending is by hiding, disguising, or concealing. Now, Jesus exposed what sinners wanted to hide. The Bible exposes what sinners want to hide. The truth exposes what sinners would prefer to be hidden. And this is exactly why Christ became the great enemy of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and his own countrymen and brethren, the Jews. Our text speaks directly that he said, verse 22, if I had not come. Number two, and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had had not sin. What is he saying there? He exposed them. In three ways, very clearly there, right? By coming, by speaking, and by working. Now let's think about it for a moment. Briefly, what does he mean by coming? Well, think about it. Everybody that ever lived on this earth was a descendant of Adam and Eve, which makes us all what? Sinners. Sinners. 
when Jesus Christ came to this earth, was born of a virgin, and became one of us, He was not a sinner. He did not come as a sinner the way you and I did. He did not inherit a sin nature. He did not practice sin. He never committed a sin. He could not sin. Point being, He was different than every other human that has ever lived and ever will live. Distinctly different. Unique. Peculiar. Separate from sinners, the Bible says. Right? Think about that for a moment. You know, sometimes we use the expression, stick out like a sore thumb. Jesus Christ stuck out like a sore thumb. By what He preached and by what He did, by His behavior, the life He lived, His perspective, His attitude, His belief, His submission to the will of God. And I might add, from our context of our verse, all He had to do was be here to be hated because of who He was. I'm going to hypothetically say this, and I trust you understand it. Suppose Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was here and didn't speak a word or didn't do one miracle. It's just hypothetical, okay? Point being, he'd have still been hated because of his manner of life, his perfect obedience, never doing anything wrong, never treating anybody wrong, just doing good all the time, day in, day out, his whole life. People would have hated him. Isn't it sad that as sinners we tend to dislike or hate whatever's different? If it's not one of us, we're critical of it, right? And we say this many times, if you don't understand it, you don't like it, you know? You know, we're not objective by nature, are we? We're not accepting by nature. If it's different, we're skeptical or we don't like it. You know, may I illustrate that without picking on anybody? How many times have we done this or had it done to us when we're eating perhaps a meal and somebody says, here, try this. No, I don't want to know that. We, we, we don't, may not have identified it by name or have never partook of it before. We, no, I don't think I like that. And kids are the worst, right? No, I don't like that. Well, have you ever tried? No, but I don't like it. I mean, that, that's it, isn't it? That's it in a nutshell. So likewise, Jesus Christ was hated for who he was, being a man but without sin, surrounded by sinners. So he came. He came. And that's very important. I don't have time to spend here, but again, he came into the world. He came into total darkness and he was the only light. That's what the Bible says. So yes, very different. And by His words, His speaking, teaching, and preaching, and by His miracles, He removed sinners' cloaks, exposed their sins, and made enemies because He left them bare, naked with their sins. Literally, this is why he was hated, persecuted, 
and eventually murdered. Matthew Henry, the great Baptist commentator, made this comment. I don't quote many people many times, but I thought this very worthy at this point. The Word of God strips sin of its cloak that it may appear to be sin. That's what Jesus did. That's what the gospel does. That's what the truth that we preach, if we preach the whole counsel of God, does. May I remind you of that and how effective Christ was of that? John chapter 3 verse 19, this is a condemnation that light and light was Christ, the true light, is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Well now, if men love darkness rather than light and the light lights them up, what are they going to do about the light? They're going to try to extinguish it because they don't like it. Why is that? For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. That's it. What reason does a person have to hate God? Just being a sinner. Cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. John 1 and 9, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh in the world. Why is Jesus Christ still hated today? Why is Jesus Christ and the gospel message when it's preached in its truthfulness hated by sinners today? Because it exposes sin in sinners. You know, when sinners can live in the dark with their sin... And nobody's calling attention to it and it's hidden. Everything's fine and dandy, right? The problem comes when people get caught or exposed in their sin, right? And Jesus Christ being sinless and perfectly righteous naturally exposed sin for what it was. True, as this text says, Jesus Christ was hated, persecuted, murdered, because he told and did only the truth. He quotes Psalm 69 and 4, which says prophetically, they hated me without a cause. The hatred of Jesus Christ is unjustified and always will be, yet it will continue as long as sinners are upon the face of the earth. Jesus Christ. Isn't it ironic? I mean, think about this. Notice the irony that that is here. So strong. <coughs> Jesus Christ was falsely accused and condemned for all kinds of reasons. We don't have time to go into them. But the truth of the matter is, he was sinless, he was pure, he was holy, he was loving, and literally Stephen summed it up in that marvelous message, or, or uh, rather, uh, uh, Cornelius, and went the message to Cornelius in Acts 10, 38. Jesus Christ went about doing good. That's all he did every day, every moment that he was here upon the earth. And for this he was hated because he was different. And the difference exposed the sinners. This is why he says what he says in our text, which again is applicable to us. If we follow Christ, take the stand for Christ that Christ took, stand and preach and teach what the apostles taught, we can expect to be persecuted and we can expect to be hated because the world is not a friend of Christ and it will never be the friend of God's people if we stand on those precepts. 
I said all sinners have cloaks for their sin. Let me delve into this a little bit before we wrap up. All sinners have cloaks for their sin. And I would categorize these into two. There is the non-religious cloak and there is the religious cloak. And when I say non-religious cloak, I'm talking about what sinners hide behind that don't claim they have any religion and don't need any religion. This can be summed up in the words of the psalmist. In the 14th chapter, verse 1, repeated in the 53rd chapter, verse 1, where the Bible simply says, a familiar scripture, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool saith in his heart, there is no God. That's what we call today an atheist. We label an atheist somebody that does not believe in the existence of God. So no God means no Bible, means no sin, means no judgment, means no heaven, and no hell. And people love that. The song is still popular today. John Lennon, one of the Beatles, wrote, Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven, imagine there's no hell. He let his imagination get the best of him, and so do people that believe the lyrics of that song and wish for the things of that song. You can imagine it, but it's not going to change the fact there is a heaven, there is a hell, there is a God. God's Word is true. The atheist does not believe that. So the atheist, in reality, lives in denial. Totally, complete, 100% denial. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The atheist... Many are evolutionists. Sadly, there's a lot of evolutionists that claim to be Christians. I don't see how you can be both. <laughs> Personally, I don't. In fact, I don't. I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't believe you can. If you don't believe in the Genesis account of creation, I don't see how you can claim to be a Christian at all, a believer at all. If you don't believe in the God that created, how can you believe in the God that recreates? Denies God. The Bible, the subject of sin, and the subject of redemption in Jesus Christ. So that's their cloak. The cloak is denial. It doesn't exist. It's not true. And John talks about this, the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 10. If we confess our sin in the previous verse, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all iniquity. If we deny our sins, we make Him a liar. And the truth is not in us. So, the atheist or non-religious denial is to deny the Bible, deny God, and accuse of it all of being a lie. So this is where all human philosophy, humanism, evolution, atheism, new ageism, and all of that can be lumped into the cloak of denial. Then we have the religious cloak. And this one comes in more colors than probably Joseph's coat of many colors had on it. This is acknowledging there is a God in some way, shape, or form, whether it's agnosticism, deism, theism, or Christianity. Acknowledging God, acknowledging something of the Bible to be the Word of God, acknowledging there is sin, that God will judge sin, that there will be a heaven and a hell. But yet, in view of acknowledging all that... 
these religious individuals still pursue their own fig leaves to hide sin. That's the religious cloak. And again, they come in a wide variety of sizes and colors. Satan runs the store that merchandises these types of garments. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, did what? You know what they did. They ran and hid, sought to conceal themselves from God. This is what sin always leads to. That's why I can say universally, every sinner does this. Every sinner has a cloak for sin. What Adam and Eve's first actions were is the actions of every one of us. And in some way, some frail, weak, and meaningless way, everybody's cloak is nothing but some form of fig leaves. And you know, think about that. I don't have much time here, but just think about this. This is another message. A fig leaf on a fig tree, probably a pretty nice looking thing, don't you think? But when you pluck it off there and try to make some kind of garment to cover your body, it's not going to stay pretty very long because it is of matter that will die when it leaves and plucked off. And it's going to dry. And it's going to crumble. And it's going to have to be replaced by another fig leaf, so to speak. These are cloaks for sin. And a person who lived their life trying to keep themselves clothed with fig leaves is just exactly what I'm talking about. Sinners with their cloak or cloaks for their sin. They can change. You can drop an old one and pick up a new one and then go back to the old one. Trying to disguise or hide sin. The Pharisees, Sadducees, the Jews of Christ's day, this is exactly who he had the greatest rebuke and condemnation for. As the scripture I read to you back there a while ago in Luke chapter 20. And I don't have time to go there, but one of the scriptures I told you where our word was translated, cloak was translated pretense, was Matthew 23, 14. And Matthew 23 is the strongest words of Jesus, I believe, in the New Testament that he said to anybody anywhere when he called them, woe unto you hypocrites, generation of vipers, etc., etc. Because these people were so outwardly religious, but inwardly corrupt. And I'm just going to summarize that. You'd have to, we'd have to read that whole 23rd chapter to get all the goody there is out of that. We don't have time for that. But in verse 3 of that, when he begins, he said this, Jesus did, that pretty well sums up these religious clothes. They say and do not. They say and do not. They have a philosophy. They have a teaching. They have a doctrine. They have a faith. But sadly, as James says, they don't have works. Have nothing to back it up whatsoever. So all the outward show is nothing but a cover. Nothing but a cloak. Nothing but a disguise to hide what's really underneath. And Jesus went into great detail on that about the cup and the platter, about the sepulcher, and about the things they bind upon others but won't do themselves, and etc., etc., in that 23rd chapter. But today you think about this as we close. How many people 
are engaged in certain religious rites and ceremonies. And that's their cloak for sin. They think by the doing or the performing of a thing or many things one time or usually many, many times over and over that they can take care of their sin. When all they're doing is just like putting dirt on something, the more you put on it, it doesn't change what's underneath there. You've buried it deeper, but it's still there. It hasn't been taken away. The old saying, out of sight, out of mind. You know, that's the philosophy. Well, I'll go to church. I'll do this. I'll make a pilgrimage to a holy place. I will pray X number of times a day in such and such a place, in such and such a manner. That won't save you. That won't rid you of your sin. Well, I'll be baptized. Baptism of any kind has never washed away one sin. Well, I'll go to church and take communion. Won't do it. It's just another cloak. Just another religious cloak. Well, I will be charitable. I'll give to the poor. Well and good. They'll benefit from that. But it's still just a cloak. It's something you're hiding the real issue. All that stuff that goes on in your head, your mind, and your heart that maybe you never do but you would like to do is still sin and will still be brought up in judgment. And you can't cover it up with all the charitable acts if you live to be as long as Methuselah did. Because in judgment, there's going to be a stripping away. A stripping away. When the books are opened, everything's going to be stripped away from those who stand there in judgment. And then what people were so impressed with here on the earth will be proved to amount to nothing. Vanity. Isaiah said that, didn't he? All our works of righteousness are nothing but filthy rags in the eyes of God. They'll be seen for what they are. Nothing. The only solution, solution, for if we're going to use means in the pretext or the text of our what our text is talking about the only thing that totally covers sin or atones for sin of course is the blood of Jesus Christ that's it and that's what a, an atonement is it's a covering for sin it's a covering that removes sin totally eradicates so if you're lost today you may have that cloak of denial, atheism or whatever, that you have no sin. I warn you again, that's terrible ground to be standing on in judgment because again, to accuse God of lying who cannot lie about you and your sin is a terrible thing. John also said in 1 John 5.10, if we don't believe the record that God, we, God gave of His Son, which is the Gospel and the Bible, the message of redemption, we make God a liar. That's a terrible place to be, to accuse God of being a liar. So if you're in that category, you need to acknowledge your sin. 
believe what God has said about you. Look at your life. Examine your life. Examine your thoughts. Examine your desires. And if you objectively do that, you'll come to one conclusion. You're a great sinner. I hope you think you're the greatest sinner. Because when God convicts of sin, that's usually the way it ends up. We don't see the sin of everybody else and we don't compare ourselves to everybody else. Rather, we see our own sin. But as long as you're in denial, you're like the Pharisee that went down to pray with the public. And remember, and he said, I do this, I do this, I do this, and I'm not like him. That's to be in denial. If you're in the other category, you're religious, but you're believing that you can do things in order to alleviate your sin, you're dead wrong. Only one thing resolves the matter of sin and iniquity and transgressions, and that is the sacrificial death and blood, blood atonement of Jesus Christ. The only thing to do, and we urge you to do this today if you are lost, get rid of that cloak. Confess your sin. Acknowledge your sin. Read Psalms 51. The psalmist there said, I acknowledge my sin. I confess my sin. You know what else he said? And this is a good way to know where you stand with God today. He said, my sin is ever before me. The moment you are born again, whenever that is, your sin will always be before you. All the rest of the days of your life, your sin is going to be before you. That's what the new birth is all about. Having a sin consciousness. Being made alive to acknowledge sin. I've been saved by grace for a number of years now, 50 plus years. Six, almost 60. And ever since I've been saved, my sin has been before me every day. I know it's there. I'm conscious of it. The Holy Spirit that indwells me makes me aware of it. Confess that you have sinned against God and God should judge you. Realize that God has hid His face from you because of your sin. But God will cause His face to shine upon you the moment you acknowledge, confess, repent of your sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sin. All cloaks for sin are deceptive. They're misleading. You can't trust them. Quit hiding your sin behind them. Confess. Believe. Don't deny and have the peace and joy that only comes in knowing your sins have been remitted in the blood of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is today that you would find the grace to do that. God bless.